everyone welcome to the 85th yes the 85th edition of df direct weekly it's our weekly show where as usual we shall be discussing the latest gaming and technology news uh, with more of a focus on the technology news um, as this is the week where amd finally revealed rdna3 cards which is going to be dominating discussion this week and that's why we're joined by will judd hello as always i'm happy to be here whenever i'm here and amd hooray <laughs> They're doing something. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just thinking about that conference last night with lots of whooping. (laughs) Uh, I just trying to get myself psyched up into that mindset. And uh, of course, Alex Battaglia. Yeah, there were a few rays traced at that conference and there was talk of ray (laughs) tracing. So I definitely should be here. I feel, I feel it's appropriate. Do you think there are enough rays traced? Actually, no. That's a good question. Move on. Let's begin by talking about that in our first news topic. So yes, it was the RDNA 3 launch this week. Uh, Two models were revealed, um, Radeon RX 7900 XTX, Radeon RX 7900 XT. Yeah, so much to discuss here. The cards have been radically revamped in terms of their core architecture. Uh, Features, well, that's maybe a different story. Will, Will, why don't you uh, run us through what's actually happening with those two cards there? Okay, so we have the two cards, as as we mentioned, an XTX and an XT. Uh, the naming kind of suggests they might be quite similar in performance, but if you have a look at the specs, there's actually kind of a 15 to 20% uh, drop, depending on what spec you look at in terms of CUs, game clock, uh, memory bus, board power, that kind of thing. And there's only $100 difference in price. So we're kind of looking at a situation where, you know, the top end card could be delivering you know, pretty good value, but maybe the second tier card isn't quite there in terms of uh, value. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about the actual physical makeup of the uh, card itself? Because um, this is something big and different, right? This is actually possibly a blueprint for the future of graphics technology, wherein it's no longer a single monolithic die that that controls everything, but rather we have um, a compute die uh, which is on um, TSMC 5 nanometer, and it's surrounded by six um, memory cache dies, which are on TSMC 6 nanometer. Mm-hmm. So in theory, then, we're looking at um, a product that is going to be cheaper to manufacture, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Presumably, um, you know, whenever you make a, a die smaller, it means that you're less likely to have some sort of issue on the wafer in that particular sector. So you can make you know more dies from a given area, and yeah, it's it's a clever way of of keeping costs down as well because those six nanometer dies, obviously, you know, that's a less um, you know and less new process. It's more mature, so you know your uh, uh, gains there are going to be uh, you know more impressive. The yields are going to be better. So it's mm-hmm. a really sensible approach. Obviously, it worked really well for AMD with Ryzen. Um, you know, it's kind of allowed them to become uh, relevant again in the in the CPU space and now, you know, in some sense is a leader in that space. So it'll be really fascinating to see how that kind of translates to the GPU side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reading your uh, your coverage on Eurogamer. Essentially, the core GCD, the graphics core die, 300 square millimeter. I think, you know, RTX 4090 is like double that. Yeah. And then you've got basically those six um, smaller dies around it for the uh, Infinity Cache, 37 square millimeters each. So yeah, it's a really interesting um, way to potentially cut costs. And um, we can see that because obviously the 
highlight, I guess, is that the pricing is actually very competitive against NVIDIA. Uh, looking at, as you say, Will, um, $899 for the 7900 XT and uh, $1,000 for 7900 XTX. Uh, we'll dive into the comparisons versus last gen and uh, NVIDIA pricing um, a bit later on, I think. But um, I think the other thing they were quite in, well, I think the other thing they really wanted to emphasize was um, the form factor of the cards, which are very similar to the ones we've already seen. They were emphasizing that it's a drop-in replacement for your existing GPU, kind of implying that it isn't for NVIDIA, which doesn't make sense to me. Um, it is. <laughs> and uh, they're sticking with two 8-pin power inputs, and um, there's no uh, controversial adapter shenanigans. I think that there's... there's the adapter thing on the NVIDIA side is a problem, but I think the Gamers Nexus coverage has kind of put it into a bit more context there. So some interesting digs at NVIDIA there. I don't think they quite landed. Um, but I think one thing that does stand out is the power consumption. Hmm. The, the total board power is significantly lower than the RTX 4090. In a world where if you actually lower the 4090 to equal like what the 7900 XTX is doing, you barely use it, lose any performance. So my sort of take on that is NVIDIA possibly just didn't know where AMD would land and pushed hard on power. Um, and that's what we get. Uh, any thoughts on the physical form factor, power consumption side of things, Will? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... You know, it's very easy for AMD at this point to just say the right things because, you know, NVIDIA hasn't really had a great time of things for the yes. 4090. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that could have worked, like, you know, a new power connector, which is less fiddly, sounds awesome. You know, uh, the fact that it uses all of the power available in a system, even though it doesn't necessarily have to. I mean, that's kind of good, right? If you have a 1000 watt power supply and you're perhaps, you know, living in a place where electricity isn't super expensive <laughs> like you know you, you want the extra performance right or, or you could afford a 4090 yes yeah exactly <laughs> so so I, I can kind of see nvidia's um point of view from that but you know equally for amd you know for people that are not happy with the you know the power consumption going up so hard um in, in this generation not happy with a massive gpu that requires a brace or requires you know a separate <laughs> uh water cooling block you know like these are or, all or spirit level <laughs> yes or a spirit level <laughs> so i mean you know by by making a card which is very ordinary amd is rightfully you know getting some plaudits for that which is which is kind of cool i guess you know it, it, you know there is definitely you know we want to advance in terms of graphics cards right we want to see new features we want to see new form factors we want to you know see things evolve over time but you know it's not always you know necessary to have the latest things right away you know maybe it doesn't quite make sense for you know the 12-pin connector to be as widely pushed as it is when you know most power supplies don't include it um you know, I think, you know, basically AMD has done really well here by saying, look, it's just like the old card. You can just put it in. You're not going to have any worries. And then they're going to get a lot of positive press because of that. Um, it isn't necessarily something that they're doing, you know, you know, th this could have all been set in stone before any of the NVIDIA issues were, oh, were announced, right? For sure. For sure. Oh, it would have, they would have been, they would have been in production for a long time as well. Mm. I mean, the concept that AMD is pivoting based on bad press for NVIDIA, it's just not true. I mean, it takes years to develop a graphics card. It takes months to set up the supply lines. So this is the form factor as it was designed, right? 
And uh, it's, a, it's a good, solid design, I think. And I think the other thing which we need to bear in mind is that until RX uh, 6000 series came along, um, AMD weren't doing particularly good reference designs. And um, the 6000 was a massive leap, and this looks like a continuation of that. You know, it just looks like a really solid, well-made GPU. Um, and it looks good, right? I think it looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> judged by how good a graphics card looks. Um, Alex, I want to talk about uh, what's actually happening at the architectural level here. Um, now, we had a chat a few weeks ago where we were discussing what we'd like to see from RDNA 3. And we were hoping to see architectural changes um, and specifically increased ray tracing performance, possibly hard, more hardware acceleration there. What's your take on the architectural um, makeup of the RDNA 3 cards? Uh, so this is where I think, um, so like the presentation had a lot of high points. I think the price uh, for the top model uh, is a competitive price, you know, and I think, uh, you know, emphasis, emphasis on the form factor and all those things, those are really good. But I feel like architecturally, it kind of feels a bit like Zen 1 and Zen 1.5, you know, like two, Ryzen 1, 1700 versus Ryzen 2700. Because, and there's a number of reasons for that, where it, they are like more than doubling the amount of stream processors here in the highest end offering versus their previous highest end offering. Yet if you look at the performance scaling numbers that they put out there um, and a number of other aspects of the architecture, it's kind of not hitting that. And it's also not hitting it in terms of like, for example, like when we went from Ampere to Ada Lovelace now, we saw a smaller process. Uh, more refined architecture, we saw them hitting higher frequencies. But here the frequencies seem a bit stagnant in comparison to the last generation. So it kind of, I, th I almost feel like this is a transition uh, architecture. And the next thing that is going to be coming uh, that more uh, takes advantage of the chiplet design, because like right now the chiplet design is about more about manufacturing costs and not about performance. Because the, the real end game for the chiplet design is to have multiple compute dies, kind of like what they do with Ryzen, you know, where it's multiple compute dies that are right next to each other. And it feels like this is more of a transition design. And I think that bears out in their description of the various architectural, quote unquote, changes uh, to RDNA 3. And so there, one part of the presentation is where we, before, I was asked a couple weeks ago and a couple weeks before that, what, some, what are some things I would really like to see? And I said, I would really like to see dedicated machine learning hardware in there, like a Tensor Core or like an XMX unit that we see on Intel's Arc. They did mention machine learning in the, in the presentation, and, but based upon their description of how it's a monolithic CU and how it's sharing resources, it actually, they say it like they added some bit of hardware in there to increase machine learning capabilities of the CU. But it doesn't seem to be a Tensor Core or an XMX unit, based upon how I'm reading it. We need the white paper here, so it's kind of hard to say what exactly what it is, but it kind of reads to me like they added new instructions, almost, that will help a bit. Uh, but it's not like a dedicated fixed function unit. Um, so we'll see how that bears out in what tasks they're going to use it for, if any, on the gaming side. The other thing is that the uh, presentation did focus a bit on ray tracing uh, in the beginning part, and then also with a couple of game examples at the end. And here is one where 
I was actually pretty let down because I was really looking forward to seeing them uh, move away from their initial RDNA 2 design, which honestly was just kind of like the bare minimum you need to get hardware ray tracing acceleration in there. Uh, but here it seems more like a continuation of that design where it's using general compute and then there's ray tracing accelerators which are doing the uh, box intersection tests and ray intersection tests. It seems to be that exact same thing. But just since they have so many more CUs and a bit more infinity cache, and the infinity cache is better, that it seems like they're getting a bit of, you know, just a little bit more oomph there as a result of it. Um, I'm not sure if that is a good design uh, for the end game, so I'm a little bit worried about the performance and ray tracing uh, for the top end GPU here when it comes out. Um, but we can maybe talk about like speculative performance numbers a bit later. But this actually, from my perspective, based upon everything in this presentation where we don't have a white paper, it does seem like an iterative design on what RDNA 2 was already doing. And maybe we can get a bit more into that, uh, depending upon what you want to talk about. Yeah. Here, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I think if we go and talk about performance, where the uh, headline figure is basically that you're getting between 50 to 70% more performance than the 6950 XT, right? Mm -hmm. And that seemed to be across the board. So there's a particular slide where they're showing the uh, what they describe as you know 1.7x improvement to performance. And it seems to me that this, this extra 50 to 70% applies equally to both rasterized titles and ray tracing titles, mm -hmm. which suggests to me that you know it is all about the additional compute resources of the new hardware, and there is actually much in the way of architectural improvements on the RT side. It's basically, you know, a single performance multiplier that applies to both workloads. And what we really needed to see was actually a dramatic increase in, in the ray tracing side, right? Okay, so there's three takeaways I've got from this. First of all, that the leakers bar one or two were completely uh, off beam here. We were we were promised three gigahertz game clocks. The world's first four gigahertz GPU, it didn't happen. The clock speeds are disappointing, but only really in the context of the fact that we we're expecting so much more because of all of the pre-release hype. Uh, the second takeaway I've got is that um, there are no NVIDIA performance comparisons whatsoever. Um, and this was a golden opportunity because um, what we've got now is people extrapolating the difference between 7900XTX versus 6950XT and then trying to figure out where it sits alongside the 4090. And so a lot of the fanboy numbers I'm seeing are basically saying, hey, it's like, you know, 90% as performant as 4090. I honestly think if that was the case and your product is $600 cheaper, then you should show that right um yeah so that is my second takeaway on that and um, the third takeaway is where were the 7900 xt numbers none whatsoever now um nvidia got rightly um criticized because the performance numbers on the 4080 that it revealed were really not good enough or at least subject to controversy AMD has kind of completely bypassed that controversy by not showing any performance numbers at all. So I'm, I'm curious after that massive monologue, <laughs> what, what your thought about it is, Will. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with uh, your, your several points well raised. Um, obviously, it would have been really interesting from our point of view to see exactly how this compares to 4090. 
the fact that they didn't do that suggests that they maybe know that they're not quite at that level at, uh, for this generation. Um, likewise, you know, we would expect to see at least some numbers for the 7900 XT. You know, in theory, this is a presentation about the high end, and that hopefully would include, you know, the card that more people will go for if we're looking at a kind of 80 series, 90 series comparison, right? So the fact that we didn't get anything is a bit suspect, but whatever. I mean, we did get some interesting numbers, you know, in terms of high refresh rate, 4K gaming, and uh, 8K, aka 8K ultrawide, <laughs> and also some actual 8K uh, numbers. And those look really good. Yeah. You know, the fact that you could be playing, you know, Assassin's Creed Valhalla at 96 frames per second with FSR, that's, you know, pretty outstanding i'd say it could be that you know amd just want to avoid controversy and therefore they're just going in relatively soft saying enough to get people excited but you know they're going to let the reviews and the other coverage do the talking once the cards actually arrive or it could be that they feel like you know they're not quite on the same level as nvidia in the top end for this generation and therefore you know they don't want to make the comparison the, the the focal point of their announcement and I, you know, it could be a, a bit of both, right? Yeah, I think there's actually a, a good point there, which is that you can say that the 7900 XTX just doesn't compare because it's an entirely different price point, right? Yeah. $600. Yeah, exactly. That's like, yeah. And then the, the obvious comparison point would be the RTX 4080 16 gig model, which nobody has, including AMD. So they can't compare it. So, you know, but but no comparisons at all uh, was was slightly off-putting, uh, especially when they did compare it in terms of form factor, uh, video outputs, which we'll discuss in a moment, and, um, you know, uh, just the whole power adapter situation. So it seemed to me they took easy shots at NVIDIA, but weren't prepared to actually go head-on against them. Uh, where it matters in performance. Um, but let's talk about the video outputs because this is really interesting stuff. So um, there, there's a clear gulf here and it's a spec advantage that's clearly in favor of AMD here. DisplayPort 1.4a on the NVIDIA side, uh, which basically limits your bandwidth um, on uh, extremely high resolutions and extremely high refresh rates. Um, Again, I think this needs to be clarified because um, there's uh, DSC, basically a lossless compression system. Um, there's, there seems to be some confusion at the moment whether the 4090 can actually drive a 4K 240Hz display. Um, NVIDIA say it can uh, using DSC. The question is whether you're getting full 10-bit um, color. I mean, this the, the AMD one does 12-bit, but regardless. Um, and then AMD basically went in really heavy on this, uh, <laughs> uh, suggesting uh, refresh rates and re re resolutions that the card is in no way equipped to handle unless you're talking about bargain basement esports settings. Yeah, right? it's very interesting. I, I think I like I like the fact that there's uh, the newest DisplayPort on this GPU. I want it. It always feels like DisplayPort is announced like six years ahead of time and you're waiting an eternity for anything to get it, you know, and that's how it always feels. And it felt like that way with also with HDMI 2.1 and the support for Absolutely. it as well. Uh, so it's nice to see it actually be taken up. But at the moment, obviously, we're in this place uh, with the GPUs that we have. I think the 4090 with the LSS3 could have some use at like 4K 240. Um, 
and I guess then a little bit as well, RDNA 3 with FSR3, which we have to still talk about. Um, but like the, that is, a, it's still also extreme halo. It's not also going to be the full, you know, like refresh rate and things like that. So it does feel a bit like this is just a great way to get a dig in. Uh, I don't know actually the practical usage. <laughs> I don't know because like the thing is like the, the, these displays don't even exist yet. And if you look at the the cost of like the original HDMI 2.1 displays, oh my God, this, these displays are going to be like three or four times the cost maybe of the GPU you're attaching them to. It's going to be I don't know. I don't know exactly. It is really cool, but at the same time, it's also not like a super practical actually big feature set of the card. The the more important feature sets are like the the performance, like the the ray tracing and all these things, those are like the things that are like in the here and now actually usable. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's cool though. Uh, Will, 8K is back. <laughs> uh, yes. based, based on what AMD are telling us. I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, uh, 4090 and presumably uh, 7900 cards, they're actually going to be really good at, at 8K performance, uh, specifically if you're using DLSS or FSR. And I have actually tried the 4090 8K with, you know, native and DLSS, and it actually is workable. The question is, why would you spend so much of your presentation talking about displays and resolutions that nobody is particularly interested in? I've had an 8K screen for two years. I tried 8K gaming on it once with the 3090. <laughs> it wasn't great. So I didn't, I didn't touch it again. I tried it again with the 4090 and I thought, hey, this is pretty good, but it's it's not enough to make me buy an 8K screen. Why are we talking about 8K? And is um, AMD actually being honest in talking about 8K when it's talking about 8K ultra-wide, which is actually half the resolution of a traditional 8K display? What's what's going on here? I mean, I think it's another case of, you know, NVIDIA's, uh, you know, announcement was criticized for not including DisplayPort, uh, I think, even 2.0, right? We're still on 1.4. So I think this is just, you know, maybe this was a minor point that they said, oh, well, we're making, you know, a flagship card. This, people are going to be using this for years. Let's just put in the latest display spec. You know, maybe it doesn't, it costs a little bit, but it'll be worth it. It's good PR. And then when they saw how much, you know, of an issue people were making, you know, the NVIDIA announcement and saying, oh, well, you know, this is ridiculous that you're paying, you know, $1,600 for, you know, a card that doesn't even support the, the latest display output, then they maybe thought, okay, well, we should just pick this up in our presentation. Because it is cool. It is exciting to, to, to hear about an 8K 165 hertz screen. You know, I've been trying to stay on the, the bleeding edge of displays because I really like playing, you know, competitive shooters and stuff, but I also really like sharp text for, you know, content creation stuff, right? So even if the, you know, the uh, card itself isn't able to do both 4K and 480 hertz, like you don't necessarily need to right you could just have that display in the far future and you could have 4k for you know civilization or content creation and you could have 480 hertz for your counter-strike or whatever so you know i think there's some you know eventual need for this kind of a display spec and but in the here now it's just amd flexing on nvidia basically um but i mean the, the, as well as this you know the fact it has you know, dual, you know, AV1 encode decode is great. The fact that it has, you know, hopefully a better media encoding engine in general. Um, and it has AI enhanced video encode, which I don't know if that was mentioned much in the presentation, hmm. but it sounds interesting. 
Yeah, so, I think uh, I watched uh, Steve's coverage on Gamers Nexus. There seemed to be some... Is this the, the smart encode or whatever it was, was called? Because that seemed to be some way of distributing encoding loads between a Ryzen CPU and a and a, Yeah, an that might have been separate. Oh. But yeah. oh, this is, right, okay, interesting. Yeah, that's some, an area where AMD definitely needed to improve as well with the media engine. Mm-hmm. But it looks as though we got feature parity, at least, with NVIDIA there, which is great. Um, yeah, I think... DisplayPort 2.1, it's one of those things which is a nice to have and which you would expect to have on your Halo product. So I can understand why AMD went in on hard on NVIDIA on that. But again, it just highlights what they're not going in hard on NVIDIA at, which is, you know, basic overall performance, right? Um, Let's move on to the next big announcement, which was potentially big, but was actually presented in a way which was actually rather ambiguous and didn't really tell us much at all. Um, FSR 3, um, this seems to be an evolution of FSR 2 in the same way that DLSS 3 is an evolution over DLSS 2 in that it seems to be a temporal frame generation um, Mm -hmm. interpolation system alex thoughts yeah that's exactly what it is and um i think they also in the the footnotes they named it something like smooth motion or something like that fluid motion i think fluid Fluid motion frames fluid motion frames which is exactly that um i think this is interesting uh from the fact that uh you know we talked to intel and tom peterson was like basically saying under you know we're doing it we're doing it we're doing it and then we uh had the 4090 in our hands and it's like yeah this is what dlss3 is so you can see there's this inertia in the entire industry to push towards this technology on the pc side at least uh and so that's why i'm really happy to see amd doing this um there's obviously just a lot of questions about it because um, it does feel a bit reactionary in the fact that it's coming so much later. You know, it's not tech that was ready to be really demoed in any sense at all, like today. Um, you know, like they didn't show it off really in a good way at all. It was more about this is what we want to do in the future. And so it does seem a bit reactionary to DLSS3's announcement. Also, its naming scheme is a little bit reactionary because like, there's always this idea of like, should DLSS3 really be called DLSS3? I almost feel like they, AMD could have won some other like uh, dig points by naming it something else entirely. Um, so, <laughs> but that's just a joke. Um, I, I want to see this in person when it does come out. I have now an understanding of like a battery of tests that I would use, presuming it's supported in the same titles. I imagine it would be. Um, and we can get a good sense of like what its quality would be versus uh, the NVIDIA solution. I'm a little curious, though, about what exactly they are going to do with it, because NVIDIA a very purposefully limited DLSS 3 to Ada Lovelace because of the fixed function unit basically being there to ensure the quality and the latency are kept down. And as a part of this too, there's just the machine learning part where the machine learning part of DLSS3 is like deciding whether or not a f- part of a frame is going to be reprojected to make this fake frame, as people say, uh, using like the motion vectors or using this like um, 
uh, motion flow. I forget the, the yeah. I forget the word off, off the top of my head. Um, Fluid motion. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, no. <laughs> I forget the word. <laughs> Sorry. It's one of those mornings. But either way, there's there's a machine learning part of this that is running on the Tensor course as well. That's what I want to say. And since AMD currently, uh, with the way FSR is working, it is not leveraging machine learning at all. Um, and how they kind of want FSR2, and this, you know, that's how FSR2 was, FSR1 was to be applicable to all GPUs. I'm actually very curious about the quality and the performance of this and the input latency of this solution because NVIDIA limited it to a certain grouping of hardware due to quality and input latency concerns and performance concerns. Yet, will AMD do the same thing for those same reasons, or will they try and make it an open, inclusive, for all thing with some other caveats. I really would love to know, but we don't have any hint of that at all in this presentation, unfortunately. So I guess you'll have to contact me in one year again <laughs> to see how FSR3 <laughs> is. Anything to add to that, Will? Um, I think Alex covered it pretty well, but yeah, I mean, obviously it'll take quite a bit of time to implement this. You know, they, Presumably they've been working on it for a while as it is kind of a logical next step. Um, but you know, with the uh, release date of just next year, then you know we might not see it for for many many months. So I'm sure we'll get more information, you know, as as it's developed and as AMD are you know more willing to talk about it. So early indications are it's great to see more you know people going into the space. Now we know that all of the three major uh, players are are interested in it, and I think you know it makes a lot of sense as a development topic. So mm -hmm. too early to say now, but yeah. Encouraging signs, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, there's a few positive things from here. First of all, the reaction to DLSS three was basically, um, uh, I think. Well, <laughs> the funny thing is, of course, that it it's kind of a reaction from people, uh, the, the majority of which have never actually seen it. <laughs> um, and then there's kind of um, uh, a divide in reaction from critics who have actually seen it. And obviously, it's not the finished article. I think we were pretty clear about that. There's still a long ways to go. Um, I think specifically, the image quality issues are far less of a concern than the fact that you can't cap frame rate. You can't use G-Sync properly unless you're in the G-Sync window. There's a lot of um, issues that DLSS3 has still got to face. But I think the underlying quality is there. And basically, with um, the interview that we had with Intel and now with uh, the announcement of FSR3, we have a broad consensus amongst all of the major graphics vendors that frame generation is actually a desirable thing that should be pursued. And it's not a gimmick or a fad, right? Everybody is doing it now. And, you know, when you're looking at um, these high re resolution, high refresh rate screens, or even, you know, 1440p high refresh rate screens, uh, frame generation is going to be extremely useful for those technologies, right? Yes. It's far less useful for 60 hertz displays. I think we've, you know, demonstrated that quite, yeah. um, quite succinctly in our existing coverage. So I'm, I'm all for FSR three because basically the more people pursuing the same technology, the more competition there is, the increase in quality that there is um, across the board in all of the solutions. And, you know, DLSS, we're kind of in the same scenario that we were when DLSS first came out, which is that, um, you know, dismissed as a gimmick and then suddenly, it, you know, they've become, it evolves into something that's actually really good. 
it becomes something that needs to be copied in order for all of the vendors to stay competitive. Right. And yeah. we get increases in quality and innovation across the board. So this is all really good stuff, in my opinion. I'm really sort of happy that AMD just came out and said that they're doing it. Um, even if it's not going to be here for some time, I think it's... Um, it's just validation of the concept, right? And also further validation of innovation in the PC space, which is which is actually what we need. Um, I'm going to round off this RDNA 3 discussion by talking about, well, a very simple question. Should NVIDIA be worried, right? <laughs> because um, coming out of the RTX 4000 series announcement, uh, there wasn't really any discussion about path traced cyberpunk <laughs> yeah. um, flight simulator running at over 100 frames per second it was all about pricing and um it turned out to be somewhat unfounded with the 4090 where it's a halo product where it finds an audience regardless just like all of the titans past um but obviously th uh, the 4080 um, 16 gig, there's still a big question mark over that. I think the the question mark is now even bigger based on the stats that we saw, the benchmarks that we saw from AMD there, uh, because we're talking about a more expensive product that could conceivably have weaker raster performance, conceivably. We just haven't got the numbers at the moment. Um, and I think also the RTX 4080 12 gigabyte, which was unlaunched, um, the 7900 XT, in theory, could have shown it up something chronic. Mm. Will, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, I don't know. It's it's just difficult to say, isn't it? We don't have all the information, but I think you know NVIDIA should be worried by how well AMD is capturing the kind of public sentiment, or at least the online sentiment, that, you know, RT is not very important, therefore they're going all in in rasterization performance. They're doing kind of interesting things in terms of the chiplet design that could, you know, be relatively minor now, but next generation could be, you know, a lot bigger. And I think that helps kind of establish AMD as a rival to NVIDIA in terms of pushing GPU technology forward, right? is NVIDIA has kind of led on features such as RT and DLSS for a little while now. But this is a way to say, actually, we need to be doing something different with the you know the core hardware design here. And so that's a way for AMD to kind of recapture that uh, kind of pioneering um, kind of mantle. I think they're saying the right things in terms of power, in terms of you know DisplayPort outputs, stuff like that. So I think NVIDIA can certainly learn a lot from this in terms of its messaging and maybe what features it could think about including on its next gen cards to kind of, you know, maintain parity or to, to make things, uh, you know, less troublesome for itself. But I think in terms of overall performance, you know, it all comes down to, you know, kind of the value proposition, right? If these cards launch at their MSRPs, they have reasonable UK and EU prices, which we still, still don't know yet, then they could be pretty good alternatives to NVIDIA for people that don't care about uh, RT performance as much. Um, but equally, you know, if they come out and they're a bit lackluster, they're a bit disappointing, then people might still say, well, you know, maybe the value isn't there, but NVIDIA is still just the fastest GPU and that's what I want. So I think, mm. you know, there's, there's, it's, 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 it's a really good step forward for AMD, but I don't think NVIDIA will be, you know, changing their strategy overnight or anything like that. 
Um, well, they have changed their strategy overnight. <laughs> the the 4080-12 gig is gone. Right? Well, yeah. And um, if we look at you know the performance multipliers of the of, of these car, well of the 7900 XTX, which we know about, that would have been one hundred dollars more than the 4080-12 gig, and it would have wipes the floor with it in rasterization performance because um the they were you know nvidia actually released benchmarks for it which suggested it was in 3090 3090 ti territory so amd would have been a ton faster i i would have assumed that the 7900 xt in raster would have been uh, a good notch ahead as well raid facing performance um it might have been kind of on par or slightly lower than the 4080 12 gig but uh, assuming that they've actually managed to catch up with ampere which we don't know at the moment <laughs> um but it causes problems it, i honestly i don't think the 4090 is in any you know nvidia are not sweating about that it's a halo product um there are enough people out there that want the best of the best and also, if we look back at, um, I mean, it's basically a mirror of the situation that we had with the 6900 XT versus the 3090, where AMD delivered massive value there. It fell short on raid facing performance, but it did not impact the sales of the 3090. You know, I, I dare say that the 3090 uh, sold a lot more than the 6900 XT. So we've got a mirroring of the situation there at the high end, I think, where people who want the high end are going to pay regardless right um i think that the problems facing nvidia are with the 4080 first of all the 4080 16 gigabyte 1200 card if you can afford 1200 can you afford 1600 for the uh, 4090 um there was now you know that might sound uh sort of ridiculous but we've got an existing example of that where um, I believe the 2080 RTX 2080 underperformed sales-wise because the 2080 Ti existed. Right? Yes, 2080 was no longer the best of the best, so people, you know, spent the extra money to get that leap in performance, which the 2080, admittedly, did not deliver against the 1080 Ti. Right. Um, but looking at what's happening here, um, I've got concerns. First of all. Um, both AMD and NVIDIA are basically providing excellent gen-on-gen -gen games with their top-end products. But what's happening with the products just beneath that? We're not seeing the same gen-on-gen -gen games. And I actually have got to take issue with the concept that the 7900 XT should be called a 7900 when it's compared against the XTX. They may well be using the same silicon, but the shader count is, is, is significantly reduced. You get less memory. Um, board power is obviously lower. Um, so there's going to be a performance deficit there, which I think, you know, adding an X to the uh, 7900 XTX is, is not really good enough. And actually, the based on my reading of the specs, the 7900 XT is more cut down than the 6800 XT is compared to the 6900 XT. So We've got a great gen-on-gen -gen gain at the top end, but in the card immediately beneath, we're actually seeing hiked prices gen-on-gen uh, -gen and um, reductions in terms of the compute differential between those two products. That says to me that we're going to have problems as the stack goes further down. 
right? And we've already seen that with the 4080 12 gigabyte, which will become, I guess, some kind of 4070 um, uh, variant. In terms of whether NVIDIA should be worried, this is going to be a test of the brand, I think. I think the 4080 16 gigabyte at $1,200, um, it's I suspect it will have faster ray tracing performance, whether it's dramatically faster, possibly. Uh, raster performance, it's all to play for. AMD could be faster there with a cheaper product. I think that's worrying. I think the question is whether AM uh, is, is the extent to which um, NVIDIA wants to protect the 80-class brand, right? Um, they've already had problems with the 12 gig model which is no longer an 80 class product and it's it's potentially facing further pressure from the xtx which is cheaper and you know could beat it in some respects that's the challenge facing nvidia it may well be the case that people just don't care right because the power of the nvidia brand i mean we really need to divorce the reality of sales from the twitter sphere where you know AMD is is has exceptional representation from um, fans, leakers, uh, content creators, and then look at the commercial reality of the market, which is that AMD uh, has a twenty percent market share against Nvidia and RDNA two, and those products were excellent, by the way, did not shift the needle. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> whether we're going to see the same thing happen again. Uh, I don't know. Um, I do think that whatever's going to happen with what was the 4080 12 gigabyte, there's immense pressure now. It can't be an 899 product. It can't. I think even at 799, it might look overpriced. I agree with that. There's yeah. there's there's real challenges and problems for Nvidia there. And I think you know if they did want to um, protect the 80 class cards, I would be thinking about that 4080 16 gigabyte price point. Um, because it does seem a, a bit excessive compared to XTX, right? Mm. But I guess we'll wait and see. Any further things we want to talk about about RDNA three before we move on to our RDNA three adjacent topic point? I think we've, uh, co- I think we've covered it, right? I, I would just like to say one or two things about Halo End products, is, which is why I find the seventy nine hundred XTX a little bit of a weird proposition, um, because it feels like when you when you spend a certain amount of money on a card, like I feel like a thousand dollars is a lot of money for a GPU. <laughs> I don't know. It feels like a lot, and that, that's why I always felt like the the Titans and the 2080 Ti and the you know the 90 series were always like, this is like it's it's got to be the best. If it isn't, then like it feels a little bit weird, and that's why I kind of feel about this 7900 XTX where. I don't think it's going to be near the 4090, and I don't think it's going to be there for the ray tracing side of things. So it feels like a weird value proposition to people who want the Halo end product. So that's why I don't think it's a, a worrying position at all uh, for uh, for NVIDIA in regards to these Halo end products. It's, it seems like they're just in a different class altogether. It's just that the prices are now inflated across the board for everything. Um, and I, I want to wait for the reviews, though. Um, for these cards, uh, like Rich, I'm a little bit worried about the mid-range, what's going to end up happening with it. Uh, but I do get like the sense that we're kind of looking at like the like big Kepler, little Kepler situation going on here, where you know, uh, NVIDIA was kind of like really pushing those clocks so high on the 4090 
uh, sorry, the, the power is so high because they were worried, but then, you know, like AMD comes out with a product that's not directly competing with the highest end. So now it's going to do weird things to the market in the mid range, like we saw back then with the 6, 680 and the 780 and 780 Ti. So I'm really worried about what's going to happen now. That's not, that's kind of really all I have to say about that because we kind of see have like these weird competition that doesn't line up anymore. It's not really lined. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting times ahead. And um, I guess the final thing I want to say is that um, 3090, 3090Ti, 3080Ti, those were overpriced products, right? And the reason they were overpriced um, is because of the existence of the RTX 3080, which its notional 699 offered incredible value. I mean, the performance delta between a 699 3080 and the $2,000, $2,000 3090 Ti is just 25%. <laughs> <That's> um, <nice. laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, the, the gap between the 699 3080 and uh, the 1499 3090, 15%. I mean, the existence of that 3080 gave a good degree of value at the high end, right? We, I don't know whether we're seeing that anymore. We, you know, I've not seen anything from um, the 4080 that says we're going to get a really good deal at the sort of $700 price point anymore. Um, at best, we're going to get, uh, you know, 3090, 3090 Ti performance at, you know, possibly $800. And that is where the 7900 XT actually looks really interesting. But, you know, what's going to happen with AMD if, you know, Conceivably, I, I mean, I honestly think that it should be those two cards should be uh, seventy eight hundred XT and seventy nine hundred XT, and then we would actually, you know, that's what the specs suggest compared to last gen, and then we would actually see that we're looking at a price hike on the um, eight hundred class product, right? So, what's going to happen on the lower on the lower cards? I mean, that's really concerning for me, but I think it just highlights things that we've been talking about in the past, which is that um, the cost of making these things is actually going up. And then on top of that, we have the amplification factor of inflation, uh, which is stupidly high at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, we seem to be cushioned, cushioned at the high end, but things are going to get gnarly lower down. And I guess that's all I've got to say about that. So let's move on to the next news topic. Uh, so this one came out in the AMD presentation, which, um, to be fair to them, they did not shy away from ray tracing. They talked a lot about ray tracing. Um, in terms of what they actually showed for ray tracing, though, um, it was far from convincing. I think one of the most bizarre things I saw on there was the announcement of uh, ray tracing support for Halo Infinite, which has long been mooted. We finally saw it. Mm. Alex... What's going on there? Because it, it's it's looking weird. Yeah, well, so <laughs> I, I think the, the issue was, uh, one, how they showed it, um, where it's like the camera wasn't even pointing at the stage really well at that point. And it's like the way you don't, the way you show, like, you don't, like, go backwards and forwards like this and, like, scroll over it to show a difference. It's, like, not enough for your brain to process it. There's, like, way, like, a big part of our videos is trying to make sure people see what the differences are. And they didn't do that well. The difference does appear to be um, ray-traced shadows from the sun. Um, and this seems to apply to certain multiplayer modes, as well as um, presumably the single-player campaign. Um, and uh, this, is a, this is a bummer, because, um, you know, 
when I talked about Halo Infinite's graphical issues back in the day pre-release, the issue was never like the shadows in the foreground aren't sharp enough. That literally is not the issue with Halo <laughs> Infinite's graphics. It is about like so many issues of lighting in the open world. And sun shadows, while very cool from a micro detail perspective up close that wasn't halo infinite's graphical problem it was like this like larger range issue of like lighting and distance detail so unless uh the the this rt patch when it comes out affects those kind of things in the campaign this is going to be a very small visual upgrade for most view angles that you can get in this game um it's a little bit weird because... Should I, they have bothered? Should, I don't think they really needed to have bothered with this. It's a nice plus point. I think Will would say this. It's a nice plus point for the fact that this is a, a live game now that has seasons and things like that. They're working on the game. It's another point, a bulletin point for their blogs. And uh, But it is not exactly actually what Halo Infinite needed. It's a, it, like it required a completely different graphical uh, update uh, to make its issues less of a, a problem. I guess it's also a little disappointing. I don't think this is a Series X. It's just PC, right? There's been no announcement of, of yeah. anything on consoles. Yeah, right? nothing on console, but like um, it would maybe make those 30 FPS modes on console seem a little bit more useful. I don't know. I feel like this is not the way to have added ray tracing to Halo Infinite, but I want to see it first. So maybe they didn't show it all. Maybe they didn't show off the good stuff for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah it is all kind of a, a, a bit strange and it's it wasn't a great way to show that the presentation there you know i'd be quite happy you know rather than focusing on raid facing maybe make vsync work correctly that would be a good start for the pc version <laughs> yeah, that would be a Infinite. really good way to get the pc version in a better place i i think so, uh just to talk about the other parts of the presentation uh, for the ray tracing that they're going to be that they showed off on AMD, they, we saw other similar kinds of uh, ray tracing upgrades. Uh, they showed off for Spoken, which seems to be using it also for ray tracing shadows from the sun. Uh, and then they showed off Callisto Protocol, which in their initial announcement uh, was about ray traced shadows, but then it came out that they're also using ray traced reflections, which I assume are the Unreal Engine ray traced reflections. And then there was the Ubisoft um, Snow was Snowdrop. I want to call it Snowflake. Snow, Snowdrop. Snowdrop 2.0. Snowflake. Snowflake engine. Uh, and this one is going to be really interesting <laughs> because yeah, the Snowflake engine. The Snowdrop engine is interesting because they're going to be focusing on um, real-time global illumination. Apparently like ray trace shadows and ray trace reflections too it's like going for, through the whole thing it's like it's kind of like lumen but even maybe more intense and them saying they've partnered with this studio is very interesting because this is technically historically a title that would be a bad news bear for amd ray tracing so maybe we're going to see something interesting there in terms of performance i'm not certain because they didn't really talk about it. They just kind of showed off some sort of demo, like a dark demo off screen that wasn't even a game. So I don't know. I really can't wait to see Avatar uh, in that game and see what scaling options it offers. Because maybe there is going to be like a lower end ray tracing option that was initially targeted for RDNA 2 on consoles and things, things like that. That works really well on RDNA 3. Okay, fair mm -hmm. enough. Will, anything to add to this? I mean, <laughs> what, what do you make of the Halo Infinite ray tracing? presentation 
Uh, I mean, obviously they're not in the business of, um, you know, showing off RT upgrades, you know, in, in granular detail. Um, it was more meant to be like, look, we're working with developers. We're trying to make sure our, our you know, cards are performing well and supporting the features and stuff like that. So, you know, from that point of point of view, I think it kind of makes sense. Um, I think very few people who are interested in kind of a competitive multiplayer shooter are going to be willing to turn on RT, even if it doesn't have a massive performance impact, because, you know, the uh, even if you're getting like 30 FPS more, that's probably significantly better for you in terms of what you're likely to notice, you know, playing the game. Mm-hmm. So bit of a weird one, but if it gets rolled into the campaign or if it gets rolled into other places, then I, I guess it makes sense. And hopefully it's part of a, a bigger overhaul than just, you know, ticking the RT box. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on to the next news topic. So um, this week, Sony announced that PlayStation VR 2 is coming out in February 2023. Not so long away, like three months now. Wow. Pretty awesome. Um, but also that it has a price point. The price point is $550. Uh, so in the US, at least, the uh, headset is more expensive than the console. It's kind of more broadly comparable to the price of the console in other regions. Um, there's two big uh, sort of points of contention here. First of all, there is the price point, and secondly, there's the software lineup. And um, we've actually got some questions from DF supporters here about PS VR 2. And um, yeah, uh, let's take a look at this one from 1040 STF. Hi, folks. I'm super hyped for the PS VR 2. Its tech looks great, and I didn't expect to price that low for those features. But is it just me, or is the launch lineup of games kind of a downer? Or maybe it's because I feel only curious. Uh, by Horizon VR, but not that excited. At least with the PSVR 1, we did get the unforgettable experiences that were Until Dawn, Rush of Blood, Res Infinite, Batman, Arkham VR, and more weird experiments like Battlezone, Bound, uh, Hatsune Miko, mm-hmm. Super Stardust. Oh, he goes on. Um, <laughs> but basically, he's uh, concerned about the launch lineup. Other people are suggesting that uh, despite uh, the incredible specs uh, that this headset has got, concept of launching a headset that expensive is is just is dooms it mm. from day one uh will what's your thoughts i mean i i think the important thing to keep in mind is this is not an upgrade that sony expects everyone to go out and buy for their playstation 5 this is for a very small percentage of uh people that are interested in vr and want to experience something that's quite different than kind of regular flat screen gaming right um if we look at you know the cost of similar high-end hardware in the PC space, you know we have, for example, the Valve Index, which with its tracking things costs nine hundred and nineteen pounds, and without its tracking things costs six hundred and eighty-nine pounds. You know this yeah, isn't nuts. an unreasonable amount of money to pay for a high-end VR experience, right? I think you know from the hardware side of things, it looks pretty impressive, right? Um, Absolutely. So if if the the game lineup isn't quite there then that's you know maybe more of a disappointment but in terms of the hardware i think it's a solid value proposition from from my perspective at least it's just not uh, a mainstream price point right i think if they were going for that they would have uh, basically uh, produced a device much more like the oculus quest 2 sorry meta quest 2 oh gosh uh which is significantly cheaper um, and, and does a job. But it does look like they are actually trying to push the state of the art in VR here. You compare the specs of this up against the Oculus Quest, sorry, Meta Quest Pro, 
it's actually beating it in in many dimensions. Mm -hmm. So I actually think this is actually a, a really good piece of technology that is fairly priced. The question is whether it will penetrate into the mainstream. Um, and I think it's going to beat the old PSVR, which was $400 without controllers. It's going to beat that into a cocked hat. So <laughs> I'm personally very excited. Um, however, there is the concept which 1040 STF is raising here, which is that the launch lineup doesn't actually look that compelling and there is no quote unquote killer app. Um, yeah. What do you make of that, Alex? I, yeah, I'd say like, where's Half-Life Alex as John? Because John's not here. I'm being a spirit animal today. <laughs> where's Half-Life Alex? That is a that is the game that would probably make people buy a PSVR too, um, because it's that good and it's it's a triple A experience. That's a long, dedicated single player campaign. It's awesome, uh, and it's missing here. And I think that's kind of my issue with PSVR 2. I think the price is actually really great for the hardware, but it just kind of lacks the utility for the games you're getting at the moment at the launch because there is like not this really large group of launch titles that are just like screaming at you to buy them. Um, so like I really think it actually does need PC support as like they could do a really cool thing with the market here and capture a lot of people and get a lot of people to buy this, I think, because as soon as it has PC support, you have the ability for one, just so many other people using this one device. You have a lot of people programming against it. You get this immense back catalog of games per chance, depending upon how it's supported on PC. I feel like that would be an incredible way uh, for for some disruption here that is missing, and it would make it. Oh, I would I would probably buy it actually if it had PC support because it would be fun to check out PS5 games on the channel occasionally, but then also use it for myself. Like I would actually I would probably buy this because I don't really I don't really think I need the cordless experience with VR. I'm actually pretty fine with the cord. Um, so like I, I feel like this could be an amazing PC headset. It's a shame that it isn't. Well, we've got a question here from Christoffel de Greuter. Mm. Hey, DF, do you think Sony would allow the PSVR 2 to be able to be used on PC through Steam VR? I would love to use it for Half-Life Alex. So he's essentially mirroring your yeah. uh, wishes for the device. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I think it should happen. Uh, but I do think that uh, Sony would be worried about losing sales. Uh, because obviously there may well be a subsidization element to the price point hmm. based on the concept that people are actually going to be buying games for this device and they get a big cut of those of those game sales, oh, yeah. which they wouldn't get on PC. Uh, I do think there is still a, a chance that the PSVR 2 will be uh, reverse engineered and there'll be open source drivers from the community. Mm. It's not beyond the realms of possibility, should we say. Um, but I think it would be immensely forward-looking if... Um, if there were some kind of partnership with the with the PC space, um, but it would require a level of innovation, which is possibly beyond quite a conservative company like Sony. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'd be surprised if it happened. I'd love to see it happen. Um, but I do think they just need to get Half Life Alex onto that onto that onto their system, no matter what it takes. Uh, there's not really too much more to add to this. Obviously, the release date is, is you know, it's great to actually know that it's coming, that it's not too far away. We know that there are software, that there is a, a, a range of software available for it. Our hopes were that it would um, propel VR development from beyond 
um, the standard set by the uh, MetaQuest 2. Um, but I understand that nine of the 11 titles that were announced are actually available on other platforms, uh, which, you know, is is a conservative beginning. It puts the emphasis on first party development. We're getting a Horizon game, but what are we going to get beyond that? Uh, mm -hmm. I'd love to see an Astrobot game, bearing in mind how, how good the first one was on PSVR 1. Um, I've, I, I haven't seen much in the way of full-throated support no. for uh, PSVR 2 from key first-party studios, right? Mm -hmm. um, beyond Horizon. So definitely going to be interested to see how that plays out. Um, I'd love for John to be doing the review of this uh, once we do get hardware. I guess we need to wait and see. But um, yeah, great hardware. Game selection still up in the air. Still to be uh, yeah, still to be confirmed in terms of how good it's going to be. But I guess that's all I've got to say about that at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on to our next news story. We've been spending a lot of time talking about pricing of consumer electronics, graphics cards in particular. Um, an interesting story emerged this week. Um, Phil Spencer basically admitting that uh, even now, two years on, or almost two years on, at least two years on from launch, um, they're still losing money on Xbox Series consoles. Uh, the figure mooted was between $100 to $200. I suspect that it would be $100 for the Series X and $200 for the Series X. Uh, Will, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's something we've kind of suspected for a long time. So I guess it's you know good to have it confirmed. Um, it's not uncommon for you know uh, you know these companies that are making so much money through game sales, through Games Pass, through you know all these kind of other revenue streams to uh, you know to to accept a, a lower price that means that their device will be in the hands of more people, right? I think especially you know given the inflation given the fact that we've already seen uh sony increase the price of the ps5 you know if anything the situation will have gotten worse for microsoft in in the over the same time period mm. so you know it might be that at launch this figure maybe it wasn't up to the 200 dollar mark but maybe now it is um yeah it's not incredibly surprising but obviously microsoft makes a, a lot of money from game pass and a lot of money from everything else it does so i don't think this is too worrying but it, you know, it does again hint towards the fact that we're likely going to see uh, price increases uh, from Microsoft for various Xbox things uh, in the future. Yeah, Alex, what do you make of this? Because conceivably, Xbox Series X is a machine that costs uh, Microsoft seven hundred dollars to make, which kind of puts these GPU price hikes we've been talking right. about into perspective, right? Yeah, that's that's the interesting part. Where when you talked with Microsoft all those years ago, they talked about the, you know. The price, uh, the price for just getting a, a wafer or a die or making this system on a chip is not really going down. So that's why they're canceling the idea of a mid-gen upgrade, or they think it's not really, really feasible. And I think this points to it really well. It also reflects what's going on in the PC space, unfortunately. Um, it, I'm just like slightly curious about whether or not they're going to. Um, increase the price overall for every market. Uh, I think I read that the price has been increased recently for Xbox Series X in India. Please correct me if I'm wrong in the audience. Um, but it, it does show that they're willing to do this uh, on a local market condition basis um, for whatever reasons. 
Uh, so it's possible, but I'm wondering if they would maybe just do it in certain parts of the world and not others when they do do it, kind of like how Sony didn't do it for the US. But yeah. Mm, yeah, I think the issue has been currency fluctuations as well. Uh, the, the euro is tanked, the pound has tanked, uh, the dollar is basically the world's reserve currency, so it's in a good position comparatively. Relatively, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you may well be right that we'll see different rises in different territories, but I don't think Europe and UK are going to be immune to that. Um, there's not really too much more to say about that. I just think wanted to highlight it because the concept of rising prices for our gaming equipment, we've kind of got to get to grips with it. We've got to understand it. We've got to accept it, that it's happening, right? Mm. Um, and it's it's not as if, it, you know, uh, companies want to put out a product that is ostensibly ripping you off. It's mm. just the reality of the environment that we've got at the moment, uh, which is which is not great. Um Let's move on to our next topic. Uh, this one is actually, well, we were going to talk about the fact that uh, the last two Sony products off the PC, Uncharted and Sackboy, A Big Adventure, have not actually performed as well as uh, prior games. We could talk about that. Um, but I actually think the concept of Sackboy not selling particularly well is probably less relevant to our interests than the fact that it stutters mm -hmm. horribly in its is a really poor experience for PC gamers. Yeah. Ah, um, let's take some questions from DF supporters on this because I think the coverage was pretty clear. Uh, Kerry M asks, it's clear that the stutter struggle is real and Alex has had enough. <laughs> <laughs> has, has Epic been in communication with DF about this issue at the engine level? What actions are communities taking or should take to help put a spotlight on this issue and start down a path to a solution? Uh, interesting question there. Um, Alex, yeah. care to answer that one? I mean, yeah. Yeah, for the record, when we were talking about UE5 with uh, Epic, I did actually ask what was going on there. Mm -hmm. they were, you know, they did say they were addressing it. I believe they've actually made documentation available, which is trying first steps in addressing the issue with Unreal Engine. Mm -hmm. um, what is actually going on there? So, um, uh, like, that direct conversation had, uh, like, as when we were talking about the Matrix on console back in the day. And so that was, like, one thing that we talked about then a little bit, but it was mainly about the console, so it wasn't about that. But behind the scenes, I have had some conversations with people who cannot be named about this. And, yes, it's been on their radar for a while uh, ever since it started picking up news, like it was a like I think it's just because of us at that point, um, where it's like a bad reputation for the engine that they don't want to have, quite obviously. So they've been working on it, and Unreal Engine 5.1 and 5.2 then, uh, when they release, will have two versions of um, PSO caching, shader compilation caching, one that is on demand, and this is more. Um, developer focused where when you load up Unreal Engine 5 or 4 and you just like start up a project file um, you basically have an unresponsive PC until all the shaders have cached and that's a lot for a larger project file so it's like a huge downtime for development and at that point in time and so every time you get into a build you're doing this it's like oh my god this is horrible so they have it on demand for developers um, so that It'll just display what you're looking at, and the shaders will come in over time without disrupting your workflow. That's the idea of on-demand shader compilation. Then they have the idea of automated PSO gathering. And this is one that 
is a problem right now with how the current system is for Unreal Engine 4, where to get this like large cache of PSOs, that can be compiled at any one time that the developer sees fit, hopefully before you start the game, or maybe if they're smart enough to do this, um, have it done asynchronously in the background, that, you know, like to do this, you would have to have QA play through the entire game and then get this list of PSOs that need to be cached. Really bad idea because one, it requires QA to replay the entire game all the time. And the old system also didn't even include a variety of shaders. It did not include ray tracing shaders. It did not include Niagara shaders. So you would still get stutters no matter what. This new system should include new shader types and do it automatically, apparently based on the documentation. And which would make developers' lives fixing this a good deal better. This only covers Unreal Engine 5 based upon everything that's been put out so far. So that's a big issue for legacy titles. This conversation we're having right now, this conversation I've been having in the past has always been about Unreal Engine 4 usually. So all this work that Epic is doing is not being backported at the moment. So we should expect in the very near future and in the future to come, whenever an Unreal Engine 4 game comes out, we should almost expect it to stutter at this point in time, unless the developer went in there and did a lot of work. So that's really unfortunate. And it, this obviously doesn't help games that are already released as well, too. Um, so mm. that's the way they live the land, but it, it does bode well for Unreal Engine 5. It's just a matter of seeing like what it looks like in practice. I did download 5.1 this morning, and I was looking at it. Um, so maybe I would like to report back on that soon enough for the channel. Well, that answers answers a question from Tortellini. Mm -hmm. We all know about hashtag status struggle. Does UE5 have anything in it to help out with shader comp stuttering? Yeah. Uh, I think that's answered quite comprehensively. Um, but there we go with this question from Sloth. Ooh. Flash with cash from reaching 1.27 million subscribers, you can now finally afford a shader butler. <laughs> <laughs> the shader butler will play through games in advance on your pc so that when it's your turn you get a stutter-free experience mm -hmm. now this is a joke but it is the only way to get a stutter-free experience uh, on a standard pc at this time yeah what game would be top of your list for, you, for your shader butler to prepare for you oh. <laughs> or would you consider this too onerous a task for any employee Oh my interesting God. question from Sloth there. Uh, any thoughts on this one, Will? Um, thankfully, the sort of games I play tend to be so old that they don't actually have this kind of problem. So I think that it would be too onerous a task for any living human to attempt. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll pass it over to you, Alex and or Rich. Oh my gosh. Uh, I would say for me, my shader butler, especially <laughs> the being, um, would probably, uh, when I was playing uh, Sword and Fairy 7 was one of the first times I started highlighting it in a more noticeable way on the channel. I did talk about it before, but like that was one of the first titles where I said, like, this is the difference. Look at it on screen. And I felt like that title had horrible shader compilation stutter. Absolutely atrocious. Um, where I played it to like, I want to say like eight hours of the game. And it was still happening later in the game because uh like that's the thing is like i saw people talking about this for sackboy they were like alex you're you're kind of um over exaggerating this it's only for the first 10 minutes of the game and it's it's not for the only first 10 minutes of the game it happens every single time a new thing happens and games are not just the same environment over and over again they're not the same effects over and over again they're not 
you know, they're not that way. You know, games have like new environments, new effects, new enemy types towards the later end of the game, new puzzles. These all these are always showing new things on screen. So it's actually constantly happening through this story. It's just happening less over time. The whole point is it should never happen at all in the first place. And a game like Sword and Fairy 7, it was like every, I want to say like two hours, there was a new environment, new enemy types, because it like went from snow to desert to jungle forest. And it was just constant through the entire experience. And I was so bad. Game was gorgeous, but I would love my shader butler to play that through so I could finally beat the game. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, there is another response to your coverage, Alex, which is simply this. I don't see it on my PC. Yeah, that, that, that person <laughs> is a liar. <laughs> well, no, wait, actually, they're not a liar. They're just not very attuned to their like the physical sense of seeing. I think that's how I would describe it. Because it happens for every single PC out there. It happens on the 12900K Beast here. Definitely happens on your mid-spec machine. And if I saw someone in the comments saying, I was playing this on a Core i7-920 with a, an RTX 970, and I was not seeing any shader stutter. I'm like, boy, you definitely were. But um, so Where yeah, are your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just think you know when we've reached the point where we're starting to talk about shader butlers, even as a concept, as as a it's, good, it's it's not great, it's is not it? Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let's move on to some more DF supporter uh, uh, program questions here. Um, I mean, basically every week on our Patreon, we put forth an, a call for questions, and anything can and anything can be asked, mm -hmm. and we pick the best, and here they are. Uh, this one first from uh, Lich Redbetter, which I think is uh, awesome. Mm. Um, strangely reminiscent of something. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, the question is this. Hello, DF crew. What would you say is the best value combination of parts to upgrade a PC's core, CPU, motherboard, and RAM? My gaming PC is a bit older now, but the cost of a 13700K and Z790 motherboard with good DDR5 seems fairly prohibitive. Good question, right, Will? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I'd say that the obvious thing to, to go for is just uh, the best DDR4 system you can get. So, you know, stay on AMD, um, what is it, uh, 500 series, I guess. Yeah. And then have, you know, DDR4, 3200, CL16, something like that. And, you know, from there, you can choose whatever CPU you think makes sense for your budget. Obviously, the 5800X3D is probably the fastest option that you can get on a DDR4 platform, I would say, unless you're you know, going into the more expensive uh, 12th and 13th gen Intel. And you can, you know, there's good options all the way down the AMD Ryzen 5000 stack. Like the 5600 uh, is great. The 5600X is great. 5800 is, is, you know, also a good choice. So I think, you know, 16 gigabytes of DDR4 3200, a, you know, maybe B550 motherboard is probably good. And yeah, anything up to the 5800X3D or a 5600 would be ideal, I would say. That should keep you in good stead for a long time. Agreed. And I'd say upgrade to DDR5 and PCIe5 in a couple of years when these are going to be much more affordable. Yeah, I guess the only input I would have on that, uh, on that very good selection, Will, is that it is a dead-end platform now. There are, there are no upgrade options for gaming beyond the 5800X3D yeah. that we know of yet. So you need, to, you need to basically make a nuanced call as to where the upgradability route lies. Um, and, yeah, it's very difficult, right, because um, 
you could go to Intel and actually get a really good um, system based on twelfth uh, and thirteenth gen, but that's a dead end platform as well because you know they're going to be moving on to a new platform. You can go to AM five, uh, which is the AM the new AMD platform, where even last night in the presentation, Lisa Sue reconfirmed commitment to that platform as going to 2025 and beyond, which is awesome. But in the here and now, it's actually extremely expensive. And uh, the gaming performance of the chips isn't a worlds beyond what the uh, 5800X3D is doing. So it's actually quite a port. <laughs> We're in a time of transition. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of best bang for the buck, Will's recommendations are on the money there. Anything from Ryzen 5000 with six cores and 12 threads, I think, is actually going to be really good. Mm -hmm. And there are some really good deals there at the moment. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, if you do look at that 12th and 13th gen platform, the 12400F is, is, is a really good CPU. It can be paired with DDR4. DDR4 is, like, stupidly cheap at the moment. I just picked up 16 gigs for, like, 57 pounds. Wow. You Jeez. know, there's no way you're going to get a deal like that for DDR5. So, yeah, I think I'm going to... Although there's there's a lot of mitigating factors and things to consider, I think Will's recommendations there are definitely on the money. Um, let's move on to the next question. Uh, let's try and cover this one quite quickly, although it is quite an interesting topic. Concrete Llama suggests, or asks, rather... I found the SCORN video very interesting with regards to the performance impact of FSR 2.0. He's talking about FSR 2.0 on Series X there. Given that, as Oliver mentioned, the native resolution delta between Series X and X is usually higher than the 1080p to 1440p seen in SCORN, is FSR 2.0 even really worth it? Would native 1800p have been a better choice and offered better performance while still maintaining good image quality and without weird artifacts. Hmm. Uh, although, in all honesty, from a normal viewing distance, 1440p looks great on an OLED TV to me. Alex? Uh, I think, no, I think they made the right choice. Uh, and it's mainly because FSR, in spite of the issues I pointed out in the one, two videos now, um, I did point out also the fact that at, 14, at quality mode at 4K, that it had a number of superior image quality aspects um, to native rendering. Uh, and that's kind of the point. And I thought that was really good. And that's something I praised about FSR 2. I think its quality mode is, other than, you know, like some issues of ghosting and or the fizzle, is actually not a bad, it's it's a really great mode. And I think it's, I think they made a good choice there. And I don't think 1800p uh, with um, the game's normal TAA would be better in any way, because you'd be seeing, uh, you know, uh, upscale blur on top of Unreal Engine 5's TAA Gen 4 is just like okay nowadays. It's kind of old actually. The Gen 5 one's better and I don't think they would be using it anyway. So like I think they made the right choice for sure. Mm -hmm. mm. But he is right. The performance, uh, sorry, the resolution delta between Series X and X there uh, is is lower than expected, so it does suggest that FSR two does have quite a large yes, overhead, right? It does. It does suggest that. It also suggests, I think, maybe um, performance that they could have maybe gone higher res for some reason. They don't really need to, um, but like maybe it wouldn't be such a flawless experience because I think Oliver pointed out that the game performed pretty darn well. Uh, on Series X, at least. So maybe that's another reason why, where they could have gone higher, but it would have led to some scenes not being as stable. Who knows? Okay, fair enough. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to the final question here. 
Mm -hmm. from interesting fall. <laughs> this question is uh, in block capitals, I should say. So he's shouting this. Is Alex German or American? I must know. Thank you. Interesting fool. I'm going to say to you, das werde ich dir nie verraten. <laughs> can, can we get a translation, please, Alex? Uh, the, 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 the comments can do it for you. But yes, that, that is a, more, that is a so, more fun answer than any real answer to that question. Okay. Uh, I just generally think people are being genu genu genuinely thrown by the fact that you just use the phrase Alfreda Zane. Oh, I yeah. think it's incredibly obvious what country you come from. <laughs> um, okay, Will, this is an interesting one as well, because um, uh, you you are of gestalt nationalities, I would s suspect, right? Um, are you asking me which where I'm from, or are yeah. you asking what I think Alex is from? Are you gonna Are you gonna answer in German? That is the question. You or can. In, you or can. in American English. Uh, mein Deutsch ist sehr schlecht, schlecht uh, <laughs> aber ich kann ein bisschen Zweikons. Uh, so, uh, mm. uh, I think you've cleared what, everything what up. Wo schon ja, in you. Ah, Chinese. Well, I think I'm I so think... confused because I learned German and then I learned Chinese, and now every time I try and do one, I get the other. It's very bad. Well, interesting for I think that is a question that's been comprehensively answered by not one but two members of the team, and I think that's where we're going to end this show this week. Please do like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed the uh, the content. Ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications. Um, as usual, no guarantees there. That is my disclaimer. DF supports program. So much going on there. So much early access. So much bonus material. The new Final Fantasy 13 DF Retro episode is available for retro tier supporters. And as always, our Discord community, which you gain instant access to when you join, is incredibly awesome. Um, but yes, that's the end of the show for this week. And... Uh, it's being a weekly show. We'll see you next week.